Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, which is a podcast collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore, my co-host and joining us. And we actually have a very special edition of After Hours because not only do we have author Nina Shope, we spoke about her latest book, Asylum, with us, but we also have got a... A representative from Desank, which is the publishing house that published Asylum, Michelle. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much for letting me come on air. So I want to ask you a question, Michelle. So we've just been talking to Nina about this book during the radio broadcast, and it's a, it's an amazing book. It's an unusual book. You know, what did you think when it came across your desk, and how did you make the decision that, yeah, this is something uh, I want to publish? Well, actually, this one was a prize winner. So this one won our Desank Prize for Fiction, which we run every year. It's open to novels. Um, The cool thing about the contest is that I get to read everything, but the difficult part is that I don't get to pick the winner. Our guest judges do every year. So Nina's book was one of our five finalists, and this was definitely one of the years when I sent the finalists off to our guest judges with my fingers crossed, like, please, please, please pick my favorite, Um, and they did. So... um, One of the things that set it apart for me immediately was the language, the attention to language, the experimental aspect, as well as just how deeply Nina gets inside of these characters' perspectives. Um, So it was was right at the top of the pile from the first time I opened it. So then what happens? So she wins the contest, and you say, okay, we're ready, print the book? Or or do you you guys start working together to to really make this uh, the best novel it can be? What happens at that point? Yeah, you know, one of the fun things about running a small shop, Dezank is a, a small press, not very many employees. Um, I get to edit most of the books that I acquire. Um, editing, by far, my favorite part of the job. Um, you really get to engage deeply with the book and, and kind of... I usually describe it as you get to stick your hands in the guts and move the organs around, but given the context of this particular book, that kind of <laughs> sounds a little creepy. Um, but Nina was... Um, an absolute joy to edit with. And what we concentrated on a lot was um, story emphasis, perspective, and making sure that we kept the surreal and the realistic aspects in balance so that a reader could be enchanted and a little bit thrown off um, of what they were expecting narratively, but also understand what was going on and remain engaged. How long does that whole process take? I mean, I know it's how long is a piece of string, right? But think with this particular (laughs) book, how long typically does an editing process take? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, When I talk to my interns who are prospective members of the publishing community, hopefully they'll all be putting out amazing books someday. Um, I tell them that you usually get about a month for a content edit. I never have that much time. I'm usually squeezing it in between eight other things. But in this case, I think the actual edit only took me a couple weeks in terms of working time. And then Nina and I went back and forth over the course of about a couple of months, just hammering out a couple last things, looking at new drafts of scenes and, and new versions of a few areas that we'd isolated as hotspots. Um, Nina was one of my favorite kinds of authors because she's actually in- excited to edit and to engage with the editing process as another part of the creative process. She doesn't come into it with her fists up like she thinks the book is already perfect, um, which some authors do. So Nina, you had been working on this book for 20 years. So now you've won the contest and you start working with Michelle on the editing. And what was that like from your perspective and and the suggestions she was making to you and and how you had to handle them? Did it make you rethink some of the book? 
Um, I think at first I was really scared because I had worked on the book for so long that I thought, what if she wants me to add stuff? I don't feel like I can add another, you know, sentence to this book. Um, and I'd spent a really long time trying to actually whittle it down to be very streamlined. Um, so I feel like I was very lucky that she didn't really need me to add anything, which was a huge relief. Um, and we, she really helped me kind of hone the arc, um, which I didn't have much experience writing anyways, because I'd written novellas before. This was my first novel. Um, and I always sort of knew there were places where there was extra that dragged or that just repeated a few too many times. And I really wanted to get rid of as much of that as I could. And so the editing process really helped. And when I reread it now, I'm very happy with everything that's in there and everything we took out. So um, that was very helpful. Was it difficult because you had been with the book for 20 years, essentially, you know, the research and translating from French, the the other uh, books that you were using for, for research and then to write your own book. And then at the very end of all of that, then you're working with an editor. I mean, had you worked with an editor prior to that or was when Michelle came on board that was the first time? Actually, my sister is kind of my main editor and we she works with me from the point where the manuscript is just fragments that are in no order all the way to the very, very end. And she just is very intuitive um, with my writing. And so I've had her in there, but she knows how to deal with me too. And like she lets me, you know, have a freak out or something. And um, I wouldn't want to do that with a professional editor. So um yeah, sometimes I definitely was scared when I heard it, that it was accepted at first. I was like, oh, no, what if they want me to change it? But I was really relieved because Michelle was very flexible about like if I explained why, you know, a certain paragraph was in a different perspective um, or what I was trying to accomplish. She really was responsive to that and didn't push me to make any changes that I didn't feel comfortable with. But at the same time, she was good at pinpointing um, some of the excess that I knew I wanted to get rid of. So it, it was pretty smooth, I think. So Michelle, were you familiar with the, with the topic of the book, the hysteria and this doctor in the 1870s, or were you coming at it kind of like, wow, I didn't know any of this? Like, oh, totally green. I had no idea. It was horrifying. It was entrancing. It was absolutely mesmerizing. I think one of the things that is so compelling to the, about this novel to me is um, how easy it is to fall under Augustine's spell as the reader in much the same way that we see the character of Dr. Charcot becoming infatuated and obsessed with her. And she is magnetic and she is seductive and she is playing little power games that pull you in as the reader too. And it was just astonishing to me to learn how much of this was based on real historical figures mm -hmm. being reimagined in this in this very interesting way. Yeah, the power games, that's really interesting because we didn't get into this in the radio interview, but this book... In a lot of ways can be read almost as a battle of wills. They yeah. are just, they're almost playing chicken with each other in a way. And was that something that was probably in from the beginning, but was that something as an editor that you saw as, as like, let's really highlight this part or, you know, or this aspect of it? Because that gives it some of the tension that, that the, whose will will break first. Yeah, a lot of that was in there. I'd say where we approached that from the editorial perspective was, Toward the end of the book, um, we focused on cutting out a little bit more of the material after Augustine's um, opinion and thoughts towards Charcot start to shift so that her emotional arc with respect to him would be a little bit more straightforward and wouldn't stray back into some of the, the ways that she's responding to his, those power dynamics at the beginning of the book. So kind of focusing on that, honing in on some of her strongest emotional pushback of what he's doing and then letting that guide the narrative toward the end of the book. 
it's very gothic. I mean, we talked about Mary Shelley earlier. You don't see the style of book, you know, very often nowadays. It's so classic. I mean, you read it. It's so evocative of, you know, this time period. But it's just the language is so wonderful how Nina uh, writes. But do books like this come across your desk very often not design? <laughs> Um, I think all of our books are pretty individual. Um, one of the great things about Dezank is that we get to publish very different books. Um, but uh, occasionally we do have a book that reminds me of this, either in that gothic sense or in just in terms of the lushness and the intentionality of the language. Um, one that Nina's books reminds me of a little bit is called The Snow Collectors by Tina May Hall, which we put out in February of 2020. That one is set in more of a dystopian time, but it's got that same kind of focus on um, on language, on power games, and also on um, kind of the loss or the struggle for agency in this young woman. So Nina, so you, you go through the editing process and then you get, you know, to get to the finished book with a cover on it. And the cover is kind of an amazing cover. It's, it's like the silver on, it's like an etching. Is that what those are? Those etchings of the women, of, of a woman kind of arching her back, kind of like how you spoke of how you read, you actually read that passage um, and those positions when she's seizing. Was this cover idea who came from Michelle, came from your designer, what did you know, or came from you, Nina? Like, and what do you think about this finished, uh, how it looks, you know, it is a physical book. Um, so it's one of the illustrations that was produced by this Salpetriere Hospital, um, and it's actually of Augustine. Uh, you can kind of, if you've seen enough photographs of her, you can sort of recognize it. Um, and they would put out these tables showing all the different positions and the fits. And so this is from that. Um, and I had all those photographs and, and etchings myself, but the designer actually found this on his own. Um, so I was very excited because I'd originally had this conception of having um, a close-up of Augustine on the front, a picture of Charcot on the back or something like that. And my sister actually drew a picture that she was hoping we would use. But Michelle pointed out that, you know, it had a bit of a horror vibe. And then we wanted to point out that there was, you know, more than just the horror going on. And I loved that it's using the actual illustration from the time and that it has the two pictures, so it gives it this kind of dynamic aspect. And then we tried to also make it look like an old book um, with the colors and just kind of the layout. And so, yeah, I'm very happy with how it turned out. Yeah, I think it's absolutely beautiful. Um, well, so this is the winner of the Design Prize for Fiction. Tell us a little bit more about that competition. And, and is this an effort to find the the next great Nina Shope or you know, the next great author, the big thing, or is this just, you know, how does this prize or this competition work within the context of just your day to day work in a publishing house? Yeah, I love running the contest. We get the most amazing books through the contest. Um, a lot of times they're books that are taking risks. Um, authors who have maybe not been able to land an agent and have had agents tell them, this book is amazing, but I could never sell it. And and I feel like that is the book that I'm always looking for. Um, the contests were also able to offer a slightly larger advance than we would otherwise. Um, and most of the books that we eventually pick out as winners of that contest, much like Nina's, are just so polished. They're just top-notch. Um, and I'm hopeful that the contest helps people kind of find out about us and brings those books to us so that we get the opportunity to pick them up. How many manuscripts, how many How many people, you know, send in for their contest? Um, somewhere between 800 and 1,000 every year. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. You, and you read all of them? 
Yeah, I do. You read 800 to 1,000 books. Well, you don't read the whole book, right? I mean, some of them, a portion of it is enough to know that it's not really appropriate. Yes, tell us your, tell us your secrets now. <laughs> a thousand um, books. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. You know, we have volunteer readers who help out with looking at it in the initial stages. But Dezenk is kind of, um, we, we do kind of eclectic books. And sometimes I worry that the volunteer readers won't necessarily know what we're looking for. A couple of the books that have won... A bunch of the volunteer readers marked as this is too weird or never gonna and especially the one that was narrated by sentient cockroaches um and and but i love finding those books that take those risks and that uh, just go all the way doing something totally out there um just throwing themselves and their craft and everything they can at this story well we have every aspect of the book industry here we've got the writer publisher bookseller i mean i suppose maybe i'm representative of readers so i is publishing going, is it, it's still obviously alive and well. People are writing, you know, what, what, what's your sense on how the publishing industry is doing right now? It's a really interesting time in publishing and has been for about the last two years or, you know, 15 years, if you want to take a longer um, angle on it. Um, there's been a lot of um, collapse and acquisition in terms of the houses that are sort of devouring each other. And anytime that happens, you get smaller staffs and you get, you know, a smaller aperture through which books have to make it. And that makes it more difficult for books that are not necessarily commercial or that are doing something unusual um, to make it. Um, so to me, it's a great time to reinvigorate indie publishing, you know, and these small houses that can take risks and, and um, you know... I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that indie bookstores are a big reason that we can do this kind of thing because local indie bookstores take a chance on our books in a way that Barnes & Noble never will. Um, so, you know, communities that have strong indie bookstores help small presses get these books out there and create diversity of readership and diversity of authors and give chances to books that don't necessarily fit into this very narrow aperture. Um, so in that sense, I think it's an interesting time. I'd like to hope that, that we're starting to see kind of the ascendance of, of some small press books and, and getting those out there more in a ma mainstream sense and readers discovering them. Yeah, I mean, I see it, I, I wouldn't go so far to say a golden age of indie presses, but as a book buyer for a bookstore, there, there's many more things that are easy to get. Um, the consolidation that's happened, a lot of the presses, in, including Michelle's, including Dezank, are, are put are being distributed by a bigger house. And that makes it easy for me to buy the book up front, to reorder the book. You know, when I first started buying for the Boulder Bookstore 25 years ago, there was a lot of great small presses, but often they were off by themselves. And if I couldn't get a minimum order of 10 books, it didn't make any sense to buy it. Now, if, if I just if I just wanted one copy of one of Dezang's books, it's very easy for me to get. I can reorder it. No problem. So there are some opportunities because all these presses that have consolidated and have warehouses and distribution, they're kind of trying to make money by servicing indie presses. And a smart indie press can, I would think, use that to their advantage. Yeah, it's um, it's much easier to be distributed now than it was when I first got into the industry. And that just makes it possible for us to present our books as if they were any book coming out from Random House or Penguin or anybody. Yeah, and we're featuring them more in the store. I feel... You know, especially international literature, we're doing much more of that in the store now. And that's because a lot of these books that 
are coming in the Random House box. They're not really a Random House book. It's you know, it's a small press that's distributed by Random House, and we're doing more eclectic books and featuring more authors like Nina, who who took some real risks and real chances to to put you know on, on this novel. And so I think it's an exciting time. And if and the other thing I would say is during the pandemic, our fiction readership exploded. We're just selling so much more fiction now than we did three years ago. I don't know if that'll stay, but um, for editors and writers who who try different things with fiction, it's a real opportunity right now. Were there any particular types of fiction that were selling more than others? It, it ranges from everything. Like I, I go in on Mondays and I look to see what's sold over the weekend and I can't believe it. I'm like, Really, we sold eighteen Jane Austen books. I didn't realize we had eighteen Jane Austen books. And then, and then, but then I'll see like, wow, we sold you know that small book I brought in from the University of Georgia, and look at this, we, you know, we sold two Dzang books. Who knows? I mean, it's just all over the place. It's it really is kind of the, um, you know, the tide lifting all boats. And since we're as an independent bookstore, and you know, our store in particular, we're very dedicated to bringing in kind of this non-mainstream fiction that's being lifted up with all the other stuff. I mean, I have to wonder, is people just looking for something that's just a complete escape from (laughs) everything that is going on right now? But um, Nina, from an author's perspective, I mean, if you hadn't submitted this to the design contest, what was your master plan for getting this published? Um, Well, I guess I have a little bit less of an optimistic view from the writer's point. Um, It's I think it's harder than ever to get an agent and yet there are a lot of presses that are just completely inaccessible if you don't have an agent and I almost wish that you know some of the agents could hear what you're saying Arson, about you know the readers taking risks because I feel like they um, even the ones that I approached that were known to represent experimental writers would sort of be like oh this is too much I don't know um so I had my a lot of ups and downs trying to get the book placed and um, just a lot of frustration. And so I was obviously thrilled when it got accepted. Um, but I do think that, you know, for writers, it's, it's harder to even get to the point where their book is out now. Um, and then getting reviews and publicity has been really, really challenging, too. And just there's this whole level that you can't quite break through unless someone's willing to take a risk. And a lot of the people who are the gatekeepers aren't as willing. So that's why I was thrilled that you guys were interested in interviewing me and that I love the Boulder Bookstore. And um, I'm very grateful that indie bookstores really take those risks because um, yeah. we need it. Yeah, I think what you're saying, though, I do. I think that... Mi- that is true. You know, from the author's point of view, I don't think things are great right now. I think, you know, I think I really think almost since 9-11, you know, 2001 to now has been a declining media environment for books. And so it, it's it's been tough. And then the, we were talking before we came in the studio about TikTok and social media. But again, that's just breaking out the very top level of books. So, you know, what we need is, and it is happening to some extent, you need a strong indie press and indie bookselling ecosystem. You know, if it's only 100 indie bookstores around the country that are really willing to take the chances we're willing to, that really isn't enough to support writers like Nina. You know, it's great for us, but it's not necessarily great for her. We need three, four, five hundred stores that are all taking a few copies of these books. And so hopefully we'll get there. More indie stores are opening, 
but it, it's been a tough between Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It has made things tougher for authors, I think. Well, you mentioned I wasn't going to mention the name, but, you know, the online platform that shall not be named that you just named. <clears throat> we, we widely discussed that the impact on book selling there. But if you think about how shopping happens online, it's so algorithmic and something will be suggested if you have read something similar. So it it can, you know, pop up some great suggestions, but really it's excluding so many things if you haven't cracked that algorithm code. So, I mean, have you had experience with online sales, Michelle? But, you know, does Anchor, are you just really dealing with the, the physical brick and mortar bookstores? Yeah, it's hard. Um, the physical brick and mortar stores are definitely our biggest advocate. Um, all of our books are available on Amazon, but with Amazon, I feel like the hardest thing is just exposure. You know, if there's a certain level of exposure or review that a book hasn't reached, it simply won't be suggested by the algorithm. And it's difficult to get an indie published book up to that level. Um, so I, I love getting to do things like this, where you have a chance to put a book in front of someone that they may not have encountered before. And the same thing with, um, Nina was lucky enough to do an event with the Boulder Bookstore, and that's a chance to, you know, have that face in the book cover, um, you know, for people to discover in the local community. So um, what we're seeing a lot of right now is a lot of um, local interest, especially with books that have a local or a geographical slant. Book that we put out last year that's set in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Um, the author is local there, and the booksellers there just went um, nuts for that book, and it has done amazingly there, far exceeded my expectations, and that is entirely due to um, the strength and the loyalty of her local indie bookseller. So yeah, even with that book, not seeing too much of an online presence, but um, uh, having her local community behind her just made all the difference. Well, I mean, that's encouraging that there is an ecosystem of, of independent bookstores. And one of the things I love about going into a store is that you have booksellers who read books, who will give you a recommendation, who have their little, uh, you know, reviews on different books. And I always pay attention to them because it's very often I always try to find something that I wouldn't nat naturally gravitate towards, sort of my internal algorithm. And, and so often it's the personal recommendations of people who work in the store because they're passionate about the books. Yeah, I mean, I think and that's the most vibrant part of our store, our booksellers. We have six cases of recommended books. I mean, there's, you know, on the main floor, we have also cases in other rooms. And it's hard to find bookstores with that many genuine and they're, you know, reviews and they're all over the map. It's whatever our booksellers like. And it's it's the opposite of an algorithm, which I never understood. Like, you know. I, we, when a customer comes up to me, they'll say, like, I really love Faulkner. What else do you have like Faulkner? Like, what's the algorithm? It's like, he was Faulkner because there's nobody else like him. There is no algorithm for Faulkner. That's why he's great, you know? And like, So what know, would you do when somebody, somebody wanders up and goes, I love Faulkner? Hand them... Yeah, I don't. What did you love about him? You know, do you love do you love that he's so difficult? Then I'll give you some other difficult book. Do you love that it's set in the South? I'll give you something about the South. You know, I who knows. But but I always got frustrated. I always get frustrated with that kind of question. It's hard. It's like it's like we like books for reasons that we don't necessarily know. Like you know, and, and publishers not at the Zank, but the big publishers are always trying to sell it on something else. Like when Patrick O'Brien died, who wrote all these. Um, 18 you know books set in the 1800s uh, naval you know stories and were, for years they were selling books as in the a tradition of patrick o'brien and it would be another naval book and it's like 
I don't think these people read 20 Patrick O'Brien books because they're like naval experts, you know? So, you know, I'm always, so what you get in the independent presses as well as independent bookstores is this much more eclectic taste. And you, you try it and you might not like everything, it might, but it's going to be worth a shot. It's going to be worth the chance. It's going to be worth your time. Well, Michelle, earlier when we were talking about the, the design uh, prize for fiction, you said you could get 800 to 1,000 manuscripts submitted. I think you mentioned a book written from the perspective of sentient cockroaches. But, you know, apart from that and uh, Nina Shope's book, does it run the gamut? I mean, are you seeing trends in writing? It's very interesting. The first couple of years that we ran the prize, I would say a lot of the submissions that we got were a little more wrong for our press. Um, they were very commercial. They were very, you know, what you might think of as thrillers or mysteries. Um, nothing wrong with those genres, but it's not what we publish. Um, and the last couple of years, they have been much more experimental, much more um, literary, much more intentional with language and, and beautiful and weird, which just makes my job harder because it means that um, the, you know, the difference between books that make it to finalist status and books that make the short list or the long list, it's so close. It's, it's just like a hair's breadth apart. And it's so difficult to, to pass on a number of those books. But, you know, we have a limit to how many we can do every year. Um, sometimes we do acquire books that were finalists or, or long listers that didn't quite make it to winning the prize, but were very close and, and we just fell in love with. So it's, um, it's been fun to watch that awareness of the press and the prize evolving. Um, and uh, we're running the contest right now all the way through the end of September. Uh, and the submissions are only better and more on point than the previous year. So it's going to be impossible. So at some point, it, I mean, it must just come down to subjectivity. I mean, of the judges, you have just such a high standard. And then it's just, well, for whatever reason, I like this or somebody else likes that. I mean, Arson, you've been a reader for the Colorado Book Awards Right. Mm -hmm. So how difficult is it? I mean, at what point do you just go, I love this book and now I have to kind of ruin that by analysing why I love this book? You know, I, I to be honest, with the Colorado Book Awards, it's a different situation. I felt for the years that I read for the Colorado Book Award that the um, the best book kind of rose to the top pretty easily. Um, you know, there's just it was just something about each each year that I did it that was pretty obvious to me. I think, you know, I didn't have 800 books. Sometimes what I like to do is be what's called the selector where you get 15 or 20 books and you just have to narrow it down to the top three or four. Would you read all of those? I would read, um, I'd probably read at least 50 pages of each and I'd probably read the top six or seven through. Usually what happens is once I get to, I'll read three of the first five or six right away. And they're like, okay, these are three, the three best. So now once I read the seventh book and I'm up on page 50 and I'm like, well, it's not going to be anywhere. It's nowhere near as good as these top three already have. So that book's gone, you know, so it starts going like that. But um, it wasn't as hard. I would think what Michelle's doing, I think, is, is much more difficult and sounds like a full-time job or more. And I have a full-time job, which is not a Colorado Book Award reader. So... <laughs> <laughs> well what is next for you Nina you spent 20 years birthing this book which has been published beautiful book what, what what's next um, well luckily I am actually already working on another book so that when I was getting near the end of work on Asylum I 
partially thought maybe I'm not a writer anymore and I can't write and I'm never going to have another idea. And I had one of those, you know, crises. Um, But I got found another thing that fascinated me. Um, I'm actually trying to write about the artist Leonora Carrington, who was both a writer and an artist, a surrealist, and had this amazing life. And I'm hoping to um, not only write about her as a person, but also bring in the kind of strange, bizarre world of her paintings to the book. And I don't know how it's all going to come together, but I've got about 10,000 words. Um, and that was a really big relief to me because I, I seriously thought, well, maybe I'm just done because it's taken me so long to finish this. So, Is there a tangential connection between Augustine and Carrington? With Augustine kind of being adopted by the Surrealist and Carrington being in that world? I mean- it, it's interesting because a lot of my books or I only have two books, but my books and stories or my interests, they do have these weird tangential connections because I also have an interest in Frida Kahlo and I do a a fiber art um, linked to her and she crossed paths with Carrington. Um, Carrington was institutionalized for part of her life. So there's definitely that connection with Augustine. And then there's no mention specifically of her in what I've read so far, but the Surrealists did adopt Augustine as their mascot for a bit and sort of... Um, elevate hysteria as this amazing thing. And Carrington was known for thinking that was ridiculous, having been in a real asylum and having had a pretty horrible experience there. So she had no patience for that kind of idealizing of madness. So there's definitely connections there. And I don't know how it's all going to work itself out, but hopefully it won't take, I really hope it will, that it won't take that long this time. And Michelle, what's next for Desank? You said you're currently accepting submissions for the next contest what that goes till september yeah through september 30th um and in the meantime getting ready to launch the fall books um we've got a lot of great books coming up um a new illustrated version of lmnop which is a 20-year absolute standout star of a book um and a few others but probably my personal favorite is hobbelis by Alyssa quinn which is a debut novel coming out in september that takes um a woman who is wandering in a museum that turns into a discotheque after midnight, and she's searching for the origin of herself, her own story as an orphan, as well as sort of her species. And it gets all tangled up with the story of Lucy and Mary Leakey, the anthropologist. Um, it's surreal and it's gorgeous and weird. Um, and anyone who liked Nina's book, I think, would also love Alyssa's. So. Sounds perfectly designed. It is indeed. Well, we have been talking today with Michelle Dotter of Design Books and Nina Shope author of Asylum, which won the Design Prize for Fiction. It has just been published and that has been the subject of the Radio Book Club for this month for July. And uh, do tune into the radio broadcast version of the Radio Book Club because you can hear more about the book Asylum. After Hours at the Radio Book Club is a podcast only edition of the show that is a co-production between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host Arson Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thank you, Arson. Thank you, Maeve.